Over the uh, past few weeks, I've been listening to a podcast, um, and, and the podcast chronicles the, the history of a, a fairly large influential church that began in the 90s and has since fell apart as an organization. It's, it's a sobering story. I actually know many of the, the men who were involved in, in this church, and, and I know something of the disillusionment and, and the pain and heartbreak from what, what followed. And much of the analysis that, that the podcaster is, is talking about is centering in on the, the leadership of the church. And it seems that through a lack of maturity and accountability and humility, coupled with the support and encouragement of members and the broader culture, certain leaders became unhealthy and damaged many people in the process. And ultimately, it led to conflict and challenge and the disillusion of of the church and the organization. Now, I think we all would agree that at some level, leadership is vitally important. We might not always like it. You might have a bad boss right now, but I think we can all assent to the fact that leadership in general, it's, it's a good thing, right? You, you look at any organization, business, system, good leaders shape the, the priorities, the culture, and ultimately the health of, of the group. And, it, and it's no different in the church. Good leaders can help steer a church in a, in a good direction. And yet many of us here have experienced the, the painful reality that good leaders are hard to come by, even in the church. And, and I know that some of us have, have the scars and maybe wounds of leaders in the church that have manipulated, deceived, even, even abused. And I just want to say at the outset, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry for that. And thankfully, while people at their best can reflect God to us, people never define God for us. And so even if you've had that experience with leaders in the church, I want to remind you that God is at the head of the church and that he is the one who has a purpose for his church. And the bad leadership that you might have experienced doesn't ultimately reflect the God who you you worship. Because God's purpose, as we see in this passage, is this— Through the gift of faithful leaders, churches are protected and led. They're protected and led. So let's let's look at this passage and and learn from our chief shepherd. If you look down at your Bible, Paul, after his introduction, he gets right into business, right? Look at at verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
So we see from the outset that there, there are some things that we need to understand about the church, the basics of the church, if you will. Now, you may have grown up in church, and this might all be reminder, but I just want to help us get all on the same page. The church is God's idea, not man's. It's God's creation. He's created this group of people. He's brought us together. It was not man's idea, hey, we should get together into a group. No, it was God's idea that he saved you into the family of God that he is bringing together and he's maturing and he is building. And so we should look to him in order to see how it looks and how it operates. We don't just come into church with our own ideas taken from business or culture or just our own feelings as to how the church should operate, right? So we don't come into church and we don't really like leadership. Therefore, we don't follow the leaders, I'll attend, but I'm certainly not going to listen to you. No, we can't do that because God is the one who has established some order in the church. You can't come into church and say, well, I don't really like being known by other people. I don't like accountability, so I'll attend, but I'm not going to participate in the community. No, you can't do that because God has brought you into this church, into this family, and he said this is, this is a good thing. You can't say you come into the church, I don't really like structure. I don't like organization. I like it all just to kind of happen. Maybe a little bit of chaos, good. Well, God has said, now actually there's, there's some order to my family. And, and it's actually, it's a good thing. Because he created it and, and he knows the best design. So, so scripture in the book of Titus tells us there is order in the church. And that's what Paul instructs Titus to do, to establish some order in the church. Now, not for the purpose of less growth, right? Less gospel growth. No, Paul says, appoint these elders so that the gospel can continue to grow and to flourish. It's not to stifle the gospel moving forward. It's actually to facilitate the gospel moving forward. And so the first way, or even the primary way that Paul gives Titus in this passage to put into order these churches is the appointment of leaders. And that brings us to our first point. We just have two kind of headings, faithful leaders, false teachers. So faithful leaders. Leadership in the church is a way that God has designed there to be order in his church church. Now, again, I just want to try to level set with us just to make sure we're all on the same page related to leadership because we all go come from different backgrounds and experiences. So I just want to say two things real quick. First, there are three words used in the Bible for for this role in the church. You have elder, you have shepherd or pastor, and you have overseer, all, all represented by these Greek words. Scripture uses those interchangeably. And so we even see two of them in our passage today, elder and overseer. So my point is that while these terms emphasize different aspects of leadership in the church, they don't reference different offices. These are, these are elders. These are pastors. These are overseers. And so even in Christ's covenant, while we may call men who are bivocational, so they're not, they're not supported by the church financially as elders, and then we have this other category for full-time vocational as pastors, we're, 
we're not saying those are two different things. We're saying that there are different functions of our leadership. But ultimately, we're all, we're all doing the same thing. We're all called to this responsibility. So that's the first thing. And then the, and then the second thing is, Scripture teaches us that while leaders are vitally important, that's what we're going to talk about today, Jesus is the head of the church. So when you think about Christ's covenant, this is not Jason D's church. This is not my church. This is not the elders' church. This is not your church. Christ's covenant is, is God's church. It's, it's Jesus' church. He died. He shed his blood in order to, to save it. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's, he's at the top, if you will. Now, under Jesus, Ephesians 4 tells us that leaders are a gift to the church. So in God's household or his family, there are, there are managers that ensure its order and direction. They are under shepherds whose task is to reflect and honor the chief shepherd. And any authority that they might have is a derived authority from Jesus, from his word. And so the more an elder or a leader in the church strays from the authority of God's word, the less authority they have. Because in the church, we are all under the reign, the headship of, of Jesus. And the role is clear from God. This is an elder's role. They have a unique responsibility to teach, lead, protect, and equip the church. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean they have the sole responsibility to do those things. All those things Christians are called to do. However, elders have a unique responsibility to do these things. They are uniquely held accountable by God to do these things. All right? That's a little bit about the leadership of the church. Now, let's jump back to the passage. So Paul gives qualifications to Titus for what he should be looking for, which if I'm Titus, I'm really grateful for this, right? I'm looking at the chaos of these churches and thinking, man, this is a problem. What should I be looking for in a leader? Paul helps him, right? And he, he gives three categories of, of qualities or, or qualifications, family leadership, character, and teaching proficiency. So he begins, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the first quality of an elder is that he must be above reproach or, or blameless. Now, thankfully, as an elder, this does not mean perfection. This does not mean that they are, they never, they never sin. It, what it does mean is that his general reputation is a good one. So the idea of blamelessness is not so much a matter of how one sees himself, but how he is seen in the eyes of others. It's a matter of community reputation. So if a charge came against him, our, our impulse would be to say, now I don't think that, that, that doesn't square with what I know of, of this man. 
he, he, he seems to be above reproach. He seems to have a life that is worthy of emulation. Above reproach is, is someone who, is, who models Christ and sets an example. And so their life, while not being perfect, it's one where you see a sincere pursuit of godliness through repentance. They are to be above reproach. They are also to be a husband of only one wife, or as many translated, a one-woman man. So this is a man whose affections are focused exclusively on his wife. Now, some have taken this to mean that a man can't be divorced or has to be married, but I don't think that's correct. It probably has to more do with the character of the leader within his marriage than it does with his legal marriage status. So if the man is married, he, he is to be a faithful husband. That's, that's what it's saying. Similarly, if he has children, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now again, some people have held, held that this qualification means that the elders' dependent children be professing Christians. So I think that a, a more likely interpretation of this is simply that his children must be, they must be faithful. They must be reliable or trustworthy. This is in line with Paul's clarity regarding the Spirit's work of regeneration, right? Paul has taught the church that only God can save a soul. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to then make a qualification where now the elder is responsible for that gift of grace in their children's heart. It's always a work of grace. Now, in general, the management and stewardship required to faithfully serve in the church, listen, we should see at some level in an elder's home that they steward and manage well. Now, in these qualifications and the qualifications to come, I want us to see our role here as members of the church. Our role is not to be on the lookout and to quickly judge and condemn any elder who might not fulfill all these things. Now, we need to be careful in who we affirm as elders, but what, what I'm saying is I think our role as elders is to be looking for these qualities so that we can encourage and help. Because I'll just say, I have five children, and parenting is a lot of hard work. And you know what? I need help. I need you all. I need you all to help me be a faithful dad. I need you to help me be a faithful husband. If you're a parent, I think you can resonate at some level with we're generally more aware of our failures and our successes. And for an elder, they have the added responsibility of, of this text and others. And so let's, as a church, be quick to encourage, be quick to, to help, to, to lean in to our elders. Now, the man is supposed to be faithful in his home. He's also supposed to have character qualities, which he begins in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. 
So in other words, he shouldn't be overbearing or self-willed. He shouldn't value his own opinion more highly than, than others. He should not be quick-tempered. So the qualification is not that he never gets angry, but not, that he doesn't have a short fuse, that he's slow to anger. He should not be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. In other words, his life shouldn't be ruled by the excesses that characterize someone who doesn't know God, who just lives by the passions of the flesh. Instead, his life should exhibit the character of someone who's, who's kind, who's generous, who's self-controlled. It continues, verse 8, but he's to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. His life is to reflect the fact that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit's at work in his life. He's quick to be generous and hospitable. He's a, a lover of things that are true and wholesome and right. He demonstrates self-control and, and discipline in his life. Now, many of these qualities are the exact opposite of what we see in the false teachers, which we will look at in a minute. Overall, these, these qualities demonstrate a, a godly man who faithfully shepherds his own life, the life of his family. And then it's only after Paul mentions those things that he, he moves to the public ministry, the outward ministry in verse 9. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. As these fledgling churches are being developed in Crete, their leaders are not just to live lives that are worthy of example. They also have a responsibility to feed and protect the church. He's to provide clear-headed leadership and instruction based upon his own conviction and clarity. And the importance of this will be spelled out in the verses we'll look at in a minute. But what I want us to hear is this. A church that is begun in sound doctrine won't necessarily continue to be a church with sound doctrine. Even these churches that have been started by the gospel moving forward, the first wave of the gospel at work, Paul is telling Titus, we need to have leaders who will continue to preach sound doctrine and rebuke those who oppose it. It's important. It's continued importance. So that's it. Qualifications. Life and teaching. These are qualities that, that we should find compelling in leaders. This is what we should be looking for in our current elders and hopefully in new elders to come. Now, let me ask you this. Is this your list? What's your definition of a good leader? 
How would you have counseled Titus if he had come to you saying, hey, what what does the church need as leaders? What attracts you to certain leaders in the church? Broader evangelicalism is struggling with many things right now. But among the things that broader evangelicalism is struggling with is our infatuation with leaders who may or may not possess these qualities. Leaders who are great communicators, who have incredible charisma. They've built successful businesses. They, they make us laugh and feel good about ourselves. They're leaders who draw a crowd. They're leaders who may look more like the world's definition of leader than than God's. Now, I imagine that not many of you, if any of you, came to Christ's covenant because of some celebrity of one of our leaders. Thank God. We're, We're not that impressive, right? However, we, we still need to discern how we can be attracted to and encourage things in our leaders that aren't what God defines as faithful leaders. Where we celebrate cultural success more than faithfulness. Where we applaud them working long hours for the church, but don't appreciate them saying no to ministry in order to care for their family where we expect them to speak to every issue that comes our way rather than value their commitment to the gospel, where we assume and and demand perfection rather than jumping in to pray and help when they're struggling, where we value charisma more than we value faithful shepherding, where we applaud their teaching and instruction until they correct something that we might have said or gently rebuke something that we believe. If we're not careful, these ideas coupled with elder sin can have drastic effects on the church. As I was preparing this message, I had a long list of pastors and churches, some of who I know, some of who I don't, that have been ruined by leaders, their failures, their belief that the public platform or people's approval is the most important thing in their ministry. And it's, it's sobering. It's humbling. And so as Christ's covenant, both as an elder and a member of the church, I want us to be about the work of appreciating our pastors for the right reasons. And let me tell you, as I've gotten to know the elders in our church, I can say that they exemplify these categories. Praise God. Christ's covenant has elders who, who love you all. I've, I've seen it. They pray for you. They pursue you. They want you to grow. 
We have elders who are seeking to be faithful husbands and fathers who are trying to protect this church, trying to encourage this church. And those are the things that we as members of the church should be saying, yes, thank you. Keep going. Keep being faithful. Because as our church grows numerically, we need more elders. And so we want to be a place where men feel a responsibility to aspire to these qualifications so that they can then fulfill the role of being a faithful elder. And I just want to ask you this question. When's the last time that you encouraged a man who you know in the church for these qualities? They don't have to be an elder. But are you purposing to, to encourage, to, to stir up these this maturity and this, this growth in, in men's hearts. I think it's a good thing that, that we can do as members in the church. Now, this faithful leadership in this particular setting, but in ours as well, is in place to protect us from false teachers. And this is the second heading, and this is beginning in verse 10 where Paul Goes Just as we saw, part of the leader's role in the church is to protect the church from bad influences, from those who would distract and divide. Look at verse 10. Paul says, for there are many who are insubordinate. The same word, oddly enough, that is used for the unruly children of an elder. Insubordinate. Just wanted to highlight that. Empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. To add these churches develop, Paul is concerned that they will be led astray and deceived by those in the church who are in many ways the antithesis of what faithful leadership and teaching should be. So the church doesn't just try to guard and protect about the bad, evil world out there. No, we actually have to be aware that in the church, there can be abuse, there can be deception, there can be false teachers. Now, we don't know exactly what the false teachers were teaching. So we get some clues, right? It, he talks about them being of the circumcision party in verse 10. They devoted themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth in verse 14. At the end of chapter 3, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, Paul talks about those who quarrel about the law and engage in foolish controversies. It, it seems that these teachers were those that brought additions to the sound doctrine that Paul exhorted the elders to teach. They brought in distraction from the clear foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever their message, Paul insists that their motives are wrong. He talks about them doing it for shameful gain. Their methods are evil. They're deceivers. Their message was what ought not to be taught. And the result of this was they were upsetting whole families. They themselves have become defiled. 
His, prof- his pronouncement at the end is they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, we might ask the question, why the strong language? I mean, Paul is not mincing words when he's talking about these people. Well, I think it's, it's because of this. We protect what is precious to us. And for Paul, the closer wrong teaching got to the gospel, the more his gloves came out, the more he used strong language. Because as Paul is going to continue in this letter to Titus, the soundness of the gospel message is vitally important. If we start off in the wrong direction, we we run the risk of ending up in the wrong place. And while we may look at this church and be like, oh, that's, that's so bad for them. Good thing we don't struggle with that. I think we need to actually humble ourselves and realize that, no, we are actually susceptible to the same errors especially, I would say, the longer you're a Christian. We begin to think that maturity is found in the details and complexities of the Christian faith. We begin to be more excited about a secondary theological controversy than Jesus Christ and him crucified. We begin to become more passionate about issues than the message of grace. This is why elders are a gift to the church. And this is why, as elders, we work hard to provide context for instruction and teaching. It's why when we meet together, we instruct the Word of God. We draw our attention Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. We want our church to be well equipped. And as elders, we want to try and protect our church from distractions because we can all be distracted. And distraction is not just something that we kind of say, ah, oh, we probably shouldn't do that. For Paul, he instructs us this is a serious thing. So serious that he, in verse 12, kind of lands a knockout punch to these false teachers. He likens them to the worst caricatures of the Cretans, those who lived on the island of Crete. One of their own, outside the church, sees those living there as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's like the worst you could say about pick your kind of type of person. It's the worst thing. And Paul says, this is true, and this is what these guys are like. It's brutal. Paul exposes them to be just like the worst of those who do not follow God. And the irony is, these are people who claim to know God, who claim to have a deeper and more mature faith than Paul and other Christians. But Paul highlights the fact that, no, they're actually 
defiled, unbelieving. Their minds and their consciences have become defiled. So we, as a church, Christ Covenant Church, who loves sound doctrine, we need to be careful. We need to be on the lookout, not for any controversy, not for anything that might require us coming alongside a fellow member and helping them, instructing them, but we need to be careful for distractions from sound doctrine, from the gospel that we say we love and believe. Now, in closing, I just want to present us with both the warning and the hope in this passage. This passage serves as a warning. We neglect leadership and we neglect sound doctrine at our own peril. We need to feel that warning. What's your disposition towards the leadership and teaching in the church? Are you quick to criticize? Are you kind of bored with the gospel message? Do you maybe resent the fact that your parish elder continues to call you and email you and text you? Are you being swayed by false teaching? See the gift of faithful leaders in the church as a gift to you that you could be reminded of what is most important and what is most true. We need to be warned as a church. But second, this passage is full of hope. Yes, these false teachers were as bad as the worst of the Cretans. But you know who else are Cretans? The men who are going to be appointed as elders in the church. They also are Cretans. Rebuke in the church is for the purpose of redemption and, and growth. That's what Paul tells Titus. Rebuke them so that they may be sound in the faith. And this letter to Titus models what he's instructing Titus to do. As the letter continues, Paul is going to unfold the beautiful reality of the gospel message and how it creates in us not apathy but a passion for good works, for holiness in our lives. And so no matter where you find yourself this morning, whether you see yourself maybe as a false teacher, maybe you have been swayed by false teaching, maybe you are just living an unholy life, God's word of hope to you and to me this morning is that the grace of God has appeared to us. That's what chapter 2 is going to tell us. Chapter 3 is going to tell us that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us.
He redeemed us. And that's the message that we all need to hear over and over and over again. That as we sin, there is grace to change, to grow, to get up. As we are led astray, God calls us back. And we get to rejoice to know that the grace of God has appeared for all people. And it actually trains us to renounce the things that we once were led astray by. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the most precious thing that we are to protect. And faithful leadership in the church is meant to be a place where you hear that over and over and over again, where you go into the leader's home and you see the gospel modeled in the way that they lead their family. It's the gospel of grace. That's all that we have to proclaim. But man, what a message to proclaim. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this gospel of grace. Lord, we thank you that the gift of leadership in the church, faithful leaders, are for the purpose of instructing us, leading us, and protecting us. God, we want to be a faithful church. We want to be Christians who follow you with our whole hearts. And so, Spirit, even now in these final moments of our time together, God, I pray that you would, you would convict us where necessary. And that you would remind us of this gospel of grace that you have given to your church that is to be proclaimed and protected and spread throughout this city and this world. Thank you, Lord, for giving us faithful elders, faithful pastors. God, we pray that you would help them to continue to be faithful. God, help us to be encouragements to them. And Lord, help our church to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we close, we have the opportunity to not only hear the gospel proclaimed, not only sing about the gospel, but now see the gospel. Jesus gives us this meal, this little taste to remind us of what is true, that Jesus, the perfect son of God, shed his blood and his body was broken so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be washed clean, so that the family of God could exist as a place of hope and grace. So as we sing this next song, we're going to pass out 
the elements to communion. If, if you're here and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We want you to come back because we want this to be a place where it's safe for you to ask your questions, for you to wrestle through who Jesus is and what this gospel is. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you. There'd be other people here love to talk to you. This this meal, communion, is an act of faith for us. It's a, it's a confession, a profession that we believe this. And so if you don't believe it, we just ask that you not partake of it. Um, as the elements go by, you can just put your hands up or just say, no thanks, um, this is a meal of faith. But it's also an invitation. Because like being invited to someone's home, God invites you to come and be forgiven. Forgiven of all your sins, all the things you're ashamed about in your life. He invites you to come to table fellowship with God through Jesus. And so let's all stand now. Let's sing this song. And then we'll take communion in just a minute.